welcome back to another episode of the Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Katie. Today's episode is a special one because my co-host Maggie Warren and I interviewed my PI, Lauren O'Connell. I've known for a while that I wanted to have Lauren on as a guest on the podcast because she has a really interesting and non-traditional path to becoming a professor. We talk all about this in the episode, but as a quick rundown, Lauren received an associate's degree from Tarrant County Community College before transferring to Cornell where she received her bachelor's degree. Lauren then completed her PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, and after that she went to Harvard where she was a Bauer fellow. This program is a postdoctoral fellowship that funds independent research for five years and prepares postdocs to run future labs. So I actually first started working with Lauren when she was a Bauer fellow at Harvard and I was an undergrad and then I ended up following her across the country to work with her now here at Stanford. Lauren's role here at Stanford is as an assistant professor in the biology department and also as the principal investigator of the Laboratory for Organismal Biology at Stanford. In this episode, we'll talk about her experiences transferring from a community college to Cornell, some of the difficulties that community college students face when trying to get involved in research and STEM fields, the importance of having a life outside of work, and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Lauren. Thanks so much for being here. We'll start out with sort of the basics. Can you tell us who you are and what your job is and a little bit about the research that you do? Mm -hmm. So I'm Professor Lauren O'Connell. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biology at Stanford University. Um, My job consists of teaching. I do a lot of teaching undergraduates. Um, a lot of mentorship of people in my lab, um, service to the university and to science generally, and then the actual research that my lab does. Um, So we mostly focus on studying how brains promote behavior and how physiology changes with the environment. How did you first become interested in science? Um, I... I mean, I think I always liked science. I didn't think that it was like a subject that you one studies mm. for a career because um, I grew up on a farm, on a on a goat farm. And so there's a lot of like animal genetics and animal behavior that goes into growing up on a farm and, and having a working farm. Um, and so I don't like I didn't recognize it as that. It, these were like the chores I did for hours after school when I got home. And so I didn't recognize it as science. Like it's in hindsight that that was a nice like set, you know, learning about science. Yeah. Like Actually, what sorts you know. of chores were you doing? Oh, yeah. We had like hundreds of goats. And so I had to like oh. feed everyone when I got home and like scoop up poop and just like all, <laughs> all sorts of things. <laughs> Yeah, Did your family yeah. breed them too? Like breed them for specific physiological types? Or sorry, like um, yeah. So the kind of goats we had are called Nigerian dwarf goats, and they're a pretty small goat breed. And so all like agricultural breeds have certain like standards that you have to breed towards because you that they're judged on when you yeah. go to like the state fair and somebody's right. judging your goats. Which I spent quite a number of hours of my childhood at. <laughs> At fairs, um, walking goats around. And so, um, yeah, so you had like particular things you were breeding in. And so when my parents had to make choices about who was who they were breeding to who, um, they had to like think about things like how tall this goat was versus this goat. And like a good example is that like in the 70s, there were like no blue eyed goats in the United States. And then this like variant arose, this like dominant allele that um, that was extremely popular for no other reason other than people liked blue eyes. Uh, and then, <laughs> and so it became this craze in the goat world, but it was a dominant allele. So people like bred it into the population and now it's incredibly common, like even like 20 years later. Um, and so it's, it's actually an example that I use in, when I teach genetics. <laughs> Oh, cool. <laughs> Along with That's pictures of cool. me, like, holding baby goats. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's wow. awesome. Mm-hmm. So did you, like, when did you start thinking about science as a career then, if that wasn't something you thought of as a kid? Um, I wasn't until college, like, mm. senior, like my senior year, maybe. I, I, or junior year, maybe. I 
was so I transferred to university where there was research happening Mm -hmm. and there were grad students who were asking for undergrad volunteers to go to these majestic places, um, but that they couldn't pay you to go and you had to pay your own way. But it, so it was like not something I did, but it seemed really glamorous. And um, then I I think it was then that I first realized that science could be a job. Um, And then uh, my professor helped me get a job in a lab um, my, my kind of like junior, senior year. And then I decided that I was going to s- sort of, I decided to apply for grad school. <laughs> that wasn't my plan A though. So, um, <laughs> okay, yeah. Can you explain the sort of? <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, when I was graduating, I wanted to be a scientific illustrator because oh, wow. my major was actually art. And, but then I liked science. And so what helped me through all my science classes was all the textbooks and the illustrations in those textbooks that I thought I could do like slightly better. And so <laughs> I was going to, uh, I applied for some scientific illustration programs, um, which I didn't get into. And then I was like, well, I'll also apply for a PhD program because maybe if I get this thing that is called a PhD, I will then be better suited to have a sign, have a, like a career in scientific illustration because then I'll like know more sciencey stuff. Yeah. Um, then, yeah. So it was like more of, cause I didn't do get into the programs I wanted that I went to grad school. <laughs> so the way you just referred to like, you know, this PhD thing, I'm curious, what made you choose a PhD versus like a master's or something that might give you like a little bit more science knowledge to put you into a scientific illustration position? Or how did you sort of figure out what a PhD was and that you were interested in it? Mm-hmm. Um, mostly from, no, yeah, no one in my family has, uh, is an academic and yeah. certainly no one has any type of like post bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And so um w- I think it was mostly from the grad students that I interacted with from my classes and there were no master's students. I didn't think that was a thing, Mm. like getting a master's in science. People told me that if you drop out of grad school because you don't like it, they'll give you a master's. And so that's what I thought a master's was for a long time Mm -hmm. because that's what people told me it was. And a master's was something like Canadians or Europeans do. Um, and of course, that's not true at all. And, uh, you know, there are very good master's programs in the United States. I just didn't know about them or have like access to anyone who had done taken that path. Yeah. So it wasn't something that was on my radar. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we are so lucky that it wasn't on your radar. Might not be here. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I know, but that you didn't talk about is that you started out college in community college. And so mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk about what community college was like, and then what your transition to Cornell was like. Yeah, so I went to Tarrant County Community College, which is in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and it's just the community college in my near my town. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think I was ready for a university in a way that would like make me move really far away from my family. Mm. Um, I barely graduated high school, not in, in sort of like an interest sense. And so, mm-hmm. um, cause lots of family, lots of my family members have GEDs. And, and so that was like, I knew that was a thing I could do instead of going through this social awkwardness <laughs> of high school. <laughs> and so, um, I like, wasn't an amazing performer slash cared a lot about academics. And so uh, it also made sense for me to go to community college and it's not, and I didn't want to move away from my family. Um, I have a lot of siblings. And so that wasn't something I was interested in, like moving really far away. I also didn't have any money. So um, I, like my parents didn't, you know, save up anything for us for college. And, um, and then, you know, I had a full-time, almost a full-time job all the, all the way through community college. So um, yeah, so it was cheaper for me too. And I love community college. Um, I, you know, the classes are small and the professors are lovely and I can drive there from my house. And so mm-hmm. I can like live there, like live with my parents and still attend college. And so I, for me, it really, really worked out. I could take night classes while I was working um, and things like that. And so, and it was a nice like transition for me. Other, I think I would have been lost at a university among so many people mm-hmm. not knowing what to do. Um, and yeah, and I couldn't afford it anyways. Yeah. So you said that in high school, you weren't, you know, like super sort of focused on that. And so what made you want to even go to community college and like continue pursuing an education? 
Um, my mom believe my mom grew up in poverty. And so I think, and she worked really hard for like many years throughout her full-time job to get a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And I think having that allowed her to escape poverty um, and having this degree. And so to her, that was always very important that, that we, uh, that I go to college and mm. um, to be able to escape um, like a low socioeconomic status um, yeah. that we had. Um, you know, we weren't like in extreme poverty, like she was, but we were, you know, we still, you know, didn't have very much, not enough money to send me to college. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and still not all of my family members, my siblings have college degrees. I mean, that wasn't something they were interested in either. And so um, I think she put a lot of pressure on me because I was the oldest mm-hmm. um, to go to college. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But then, yeah, but transferring was really hard. So you asked me about transferring. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of uh, barriers to transfer students succeeding in university. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with misconceptions that people have and like the stereotype threat that they face when they arrive. And there are lots of studies about this, about how transfer students are treated like they don't belong. I was also told that I didn't belong at Cornell because I was a transfer student. Like someone straight up said that to, to oh, me and my friend. Um, they, you know, most people who go to community college are from a low socioeconomic bracket or from groups like other groups that have been historically excluded from science. And so they also, I think there are a lot of like intersectional identities among community college students that make it really hard to transfer. And then you also are coming in in a time where most students have a support network and you don't, and that makes it also really hard. Yeah. How did you overcome these? I mean, I know in my community college, I had a really strong community of friends and then jumping into university, I was kind of shocked. So I'm curious how you created your own community there. Yeah, it's lonely. Um, It's it's very lonely transferring. And so especially because I was transferring some where like I lived at home and then I transferred to somewhere in New York where everyone made fun of my accent, you know, and and so I um, and it was a big culture shock to me too, because I had also like never been on a plane, like at that point, like, like it's not, I didn't like travel. And so um, it was a huge culture shock, culture shock to me to like move from rural Texas to like uh, Ithaca. Yeah. And, and yeah. so um, it was really hard on, on multiple levels. But so Cornell actually is really great about transfer students. They take a lot of them. So oh, wow. Stanford, for example, does not. Yeah. Um, but Cornell actually does take a lot of transfer students. That's something really great about them. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of programs to help you transition. And so they put you in housing with transfer students so you can make friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I eventually moved into this kind of themed house on art, um, like an art residential oh. house. Um, and I made a lot of friends there too. So I was I was able to find my community, but then I was also a senior and graduating at that point too. So okay. it wasn't like this four-year tight-knit community that you get when you're at university. But I think there's a huge amount of social stigma. And for a while, I wouldn't talk about it, like coming from a community college at all. Like, mm-hmm. not only was I like trying to fix my accent, I was, you know, trying to like fit in as much as possible. And so, um, and so it was something I was ashamed of for a really long time. Oh. Yeah. And it was probably such a big part of your identity as well. It was part of what got you to Cornell and to have to be ashamed of that. That that sounds really rough. Yeah. I mean, of course I'm not now, but I think that's also because I'm in a position where I can now, you know, I am slightly successful and then I can also raise up other community college students too. And so now I have power to do, to make some changes. And so I'm like more vocal about it. But I think at the time when I like lacked power, it was something that I didn't like to talk about. That makes yeah. sense. So one thing that you, I know, have talked to our department about quite a bit, and it seems like was probably happening at this time too, is imposter syndrome and like sort of how to deal, what imposter syndrome sort of like feels like and how do you deal with it? And I feel like it's probably changed over time for you as you've like moved into different, you know, academic situations. And, and yeah, so I'm just curious how you think about imposter syndrome. Well, I think imposter syndrome is something that's always there for me. Like it was there when I transferred to Cornell and when I started graduate school and 
when then I went to Harvard to do my fellowship. And then now that I'm faculty, like it's still there. It's like not something that goes away. Yeah. I mean, I have a little, I think I can handle a little bit better now because I've just had it. It's like a chronic condition for me, but um, it's something it's for me, it's something that's something that didn't go away. And I think that's because, you know, people told me I didn't belong at Cornell as a transfer student. Um, when I went to graduate school, everyone had like a lot of research experience already. And, you know, because I had community college colleges typically don't have a lot of research experiences if any at all. And so I only got that my like last year of of, uh, my undergrad. And so when I came into grad school, like I had, I was more behind, I think, compared to other people and that, and uh, most of the people in my graduate class were like the children of professors. And so they had a lot of access to information and, you know, this kind of parental social capital that, that I didn't have. And so, because I'm not the child of professors, I felt like, you know, I didn't belong. And of course the, like these, the, they were totally nice people and they were like completely nice to me. And I was putting these pressures on myself because I could see that, you know, that these connections elsewhere. And so they didn't like necessarily make me feel like that. And I was putting, you know, I was making myself feel like that. And so I think once I realized that it became a bit better and realized that like I could do just as well as these other people who had these connections. Heck yes, you could. (laughs) (laughs) So what sort of research were you doing in your senior year of undergrad and then also in grad school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only person that would take me into their lab as a senior at Cornell um, was this lab that was working on like G-protein coupled receptors. Okay. And, um, and so it had nothing to do with my actual interests, <laughs> which were, which was like behavior in brains. And cause I started off majoring in biochemistry because I thought that like, that drawing these kinds of things for textbooks, like biochem textbooks was like something I wanted to do. So I was going to make, yeah. and so I was going to do biochemistry. I was doing a lot of art along the way. And then, um, I was looking at all the course catalog offerings and these behavior classes sounded amazing. Like they were like talking about animal behavior in the field. And I was like, who studies that? <laughs> that's, like, that's like something I did when I was a kid. And so I started taking these classes and then I decided to apply for some programs like that as a, as a graduate student. So I don't think, and I think I get, actually get this question a lot from undergraduates now is that they're worried that what they major in or what the kind of research they're doing as undergraduates will dictate what they're going to do in graduate school and like for the rest of their life. And I'm like, no, (laughs) you know, it's good to get lots of different research experiences. And in graduate school, no one cares what you did before. Like they care that you have research experience and that you know something about science, but it does not dictate what you do for the rest of your life. I didn't know that. I wish I had known that coming into grad school. I really did think that the research you did dictated <laughs> what you were going to do. <laughs> I feel like it seems like earlier and earlier people now think that those decisions, that those like decision points are happening. You know, I feel like there's all this pressure on high schoolers now to like get involved in research. And if you don't, like you'll never be involved in research later on. And it's kind of sad <laughs> to see all this pressure that kids are putting on themselves to like choose their career when they're 17 years old. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the number of emails that I got from high school students in the Bay Area, like wanting to volunteer for research is astounding. Yeah. And I didn't even know that was a job or that there were labs. Yeah, I I get so many emails. And so, yeah, it's really amazing. And I'm glad that like teachers are like saying, hey, this is a thing that you could do and you should email people. Um, But it's, it's just really amazing how early they're starting. Yeah. Um, so we like sort of skipped over grad school. Um, so can you talk about a little bit about like the research that you did in grad school, but also just sort of your experiences in grad school and particularly around mentorship? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I had, I think I had two major kind of life events in graduate school. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll talk about both. One was I switched labs and the other is I produced a human. So I'll do the the switching labs first. Um, So when I first got to graduate school, I joined this lab that had a lot of field work and that whose scientific questions I really liked. And it was about evolution and speciation and behavior and how brains promote 
different kinds of behavior and different species. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then we, but I, we did field work. So I got to go out, you know, I got to be outside. Um, that was exciting to me. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to do something that combined something in the field with something in the lab. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so I joined this lab because I really loved the science. Um, and so even though, as you can probably see this coming, there were many red flags at the time. And so it was fine for me being in this lab when there were a lot of senior graduate students who I think took the brunt of the force from the PI mm-hmm. and a lot of the expectations, you know, these, these senior graduate students were like writing this PI's R01s and like oh. dealing with a lot of, yeah, like they wrote the R01s, they worked crazy hours. I mean, they, it was their, they, they were amazing. And so, and they were my main mentors, you know, because mm-hmm. in, as you know, in your lab, you often see your lab mates and they are more, you know, they are as important of your mentors as, as your PI mm-hmm. becomes. Um, and so, but when they graduated, um, I didn't have anybody to like share that uh, force with. And so um, I became very unhappy, even though I really loved my science. Um, so I was like working till like two in the morning, like doing science and like taking care of this animal colony all by myself and like mentoring undergrads and TAing and like trying to write this like R01. Yeah. And, and then my PI was like, you are not working hard enough. No. Like you need to put more effort into this. And I was just like, and uh, anyway, there was a lot of, <laughs> I physically cannot. <laughs> There wow. was a lot, yeah, there was a lot of emotional abuse about yeah. how I wasn't doing things right or things like that. And I think, you know, there were some structural problems, like this lab didn't have a lab meeting. There was oh. no one to get feedback from. Um, and I felt like there was some like fudging of data happening. And so it was like not an environment that I felt good about. And so, um, so then I, like the, at the end of, so I called, so I like passed, I became like a PhD candidate in that lab. But then shortly after that, I decided to leave. I was either going to leave graduate school. So I was going to do what I thought you do. You leave <laughs> you the only way to get a master's. <laughs> and I'm going to be a scientific illustrator. And this was fine. And, uh, you know, this is this, I'm still on my plan here. It's not going to be bad. And so I think, you know, that was part, it's a theme I think that helps me also deal with imposter syndrome or like like this, the anxiety you put on yourself if you're worried about reaching like this one goal that you have set for yourself, which is like, I'm going to get a PhD or I'm going to be a faculty member. And well, like that is not how I operate. I'm like, I'm either going to stay here or I'm going to do this other thing that I want to do. And both of those things are okay. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to leave. And then um, this other person, faculty member who was on my committee um, offered me a place in his lab. I was also crying in his office. And so he like saved me from science or saved me in in science, not from science, but in science. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I switched into his lab um, and it was the best thing I did in graduate school aside from producing a human. And because, um, you know, we got along really well, he gave me a lot of professional development opportunities. I finally knew what a mentor was. Like someone met with me to talk about my science. And and so I had very low expectations perhaps, but, um, but he really helped me and we like really synergized in our work. And I, um, was able to jump right in because a lot of the techniques I already knew from my other lab and I was just applying them to a new system Mm. in my new lab. And so I was able to get things off the ground and running really quickly once I had the proper mentorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you look back at your first lab, you said that there were some like red flags that you should have seen. What were those? Like, because I imagine, was it like a direct admit um, program that you were doing? No, it was rotation based. Oh, so rotation based. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So I guess, how did you pick that lab? And were there things at the time that you saw that like, in retrospect, you should have been like, oh, no. So the PI that I had, the red flags were that they were like, the grad students were like, well, you know, he can be really intense sometimes. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we we don't really have a community, you're expected to work on your own, like, Mm -hmm. don't expect much mentorship, you need to be really independent. And so I was like, well, I'm really independent. I can do that. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I picked that lab over all my other rotations is because I liked the science better. Like I asked the mm-hmm. question better. And so I think the mistake that grad students make is that they pick science over mentorship. And that is absolutely the wrong choice. 
picking mentorship over whatever science you're doing is like 100% the way to go because Mm -hmm. it's a really long haul. And if you don't have your mentor's support, it's a really horrible experience. Mm -hmm. So I came to Stanford not really knowing what a mentor was. And so I'm curious if you could tell our audience what your definition of a mentor is and how you find a good one. So my idea of a good mentor is someone who helps you achieve your scientific goals. And so there are a couple of ways that's different from other things. So one, graduate students aren't robots and they're not there to do the things that I want to have done. So that's why my job is helping them achieve their science goals. Cause like, you know, they need to be passionate about the project and and come up with what they want to do. I mean, that's what you're in graduate school for is to answer a question. So they're not technicians. Um, And then, but also they have other life goals that are important. And so not only do they have like scientific goals, but they could have like personal goals or professional goals that they want to like have achieved throughout graduate school. And so, for example, in our lab manual, where it's listed as my first job is to support all lab members scientifically, emotionally, and financially. And I do agree that I'm responsible for like all those things. And so, but how to find someone like that? I think that the best way to find a good mentor is to ask the people that work for them. Because when I left the lab that I left, he went, this person, this PI who shall not be named, went to this other PI and he was like, I don't understand. This person just told me I was a bad mentor. Am I not the best mentor in this department? No. And so everyone thinks they're a good mentor, (laughs) you know, no one's like, I'm a bad mentor. No one functions like that. Everyone thinks they're an awesome mentor, whether they are or not. And so who knows that are the people who work for them now and who have worked for them in the, who have, who's worked for them in the past. And so I think the best way to find a good mentor is to ask the people in the lab and the people who have been through the lab because they have a little bit more distance and aren't under the direct like power or influence. Like, so for example, graduate students not, might not feel safe telling you that it's an unsafe environment, right? And so I think it's sometimes hard to get, um, to get honesty because it's an un, it's a, it could be a dangerous situation for them um, saying something like that. Um, and so, but I think if, you know, there's still red flags that you can pick up on mm-hmm. by asking other people. Mm-hmm. I love that, thank you. Okay, so can you tell us about big life event number two? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, so my graduate big life event number two in graduate school was that I had my first baby. Um, and I almost died. We both almost died in that process. Um, and so, um, cause I had like just defended, but I was like still finishing up my grad, my like papers and everything. And I was like still finishing up in my PhD lab and I was going to transition very soon to a postdoc. Um, and so, um, when I was pregnant, I had appendicitis and I went into sepsis and, um, and nearly died. And so, and Evelyn almost, Evelyn, who's now nine, um, and fine, um, almost died as well. And so she spent a couple months in an incubator box. Um, and so, which was a really like clearly stressful thing because, um, because I had defended, but I was like in between, like I was finishing things up in my PhD lab and I hadn't started in my postdoc lab, I was not eligible for maternity leave. (laughs) And so I also had very limited insurance. Mm. And so um, two weeks after that happened, after I almost died, I went back to work. um, And while- Two weeks? While Evelyn was still in the hospital because like I wasn't technically allowed any maternity leave, but in between this, I was starting my new postdoc. And so you have to be like three months on the job before you have insurance and maternity leave and things like that. And so my P my postdoc PI was very nice and let me take some time off. Um, Thank goodness. <laughs> he's not a horrible human. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but I wanted to take time off when she got out of the hospital. And so like many parents who have NICU babies, you are working throughout the day. And then like, maybe you can go visit your baby, you know? So like around like seven to midnight, I would go back to the hospital and then we would like go home and go to bed and then do it all over again. And so, and so, and then she was in the NICU for three months. And so most people in the NICU can't visit their babies at all um, because they're like working or they live far away. Most babies who are in the NICU come from 
like low socioeconomic families. Um, and there's like a race bias with like who is in like what babies end up in the NICU and things like that with all, with all the maternity care issues and things like that, that happen. Um, anyways, so it's a very stressful place to be. Um, and so, but, uh, we're fine now, but it was still really hard. Um, and I think it made me really like realign what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be and what kind of science I wanted to be doing. Um, because I think that, um, when you're doing science, when I, when I'm doing science, I have the the tendency to overwork and like work all the time because I love what I'm doing. And I think having this happen made me like realign my priorities and, you know, something's going to give when you have a family and like a job like that, and it's going to be your job and you have to be okay with that. And so, um, I learned very early, um, to like, to be okay with prioritizing home life over science life. And that that was something that I wanted to be a big theme in my lab, that like, having a family or whatever, even if you don't want a family, that's fine too. Having something outside of science is good for you and is fine. And that should be like, you, I shouldn't even have to be saying this on this podcast, but like, you know, it's okay yeah. to have things outside of science and outside of grad school. And so I definitely wanted that to be like a piece of whatever lab I, or, you know, group of people I ended up managing later. Yeah. Have you found that that priority, like that you've gotten pushback by establishing those boundaries for yourself? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I think there are a lot of social expectations that come with science. And so like when I first got to Stanford, I, I, I left, I leave at four, like four 30 or five to go pick up my kids. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'd be leaving and this professor, this like tenured professor came up to me and they were like, Oh, you're leaving. And they looked at their watch and they were like, Hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to pick up my kid from daycare. <laughs> oh, geez. And then I walked away. So like, even now I still get it. Like, mm, you're leaving. And I'm like, mm, I was here at like eight and you were yeah. like, so stop judging me on. Yeah, you know nothing about my life. <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, come on, people, stop being so judgmental. Yeah. And so, yes, I still like, I feel like I still get pushback from it. And even like a lot of like faculty social events, they're in the evenings that I just mm-hmm. don't go to. And I think some, sometimes that can be perceived as not being interested in community where it's just like, mm-hmm. I feel instead I have strong work life boundaries where like, for example, I have a travel agreement with my family. Otherwise I would be on the road all the time giving seminars. And so like I, and, or like with field work. So I have a travel, like I have travel restrictions and I have to turn down a lot of like opportunities to, to promote our work, but I still like can't be on the road all the time. And so, you know, I think there are definitely some like downsides from an outside perspective, but I don't see those things as a cost, like a real cost. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, your postdoc was like a little bit different than a typical postdoc, as I know from firsthand experience. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about your postdoc and just sort of the pluses and minuses of having like an independent postdoctoral fellowship versus sort of like a more canonical postdoc? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I mentioned in grad school how like I had a kid and like almost died and it realigned some of my scientific priorities. And so I think what motherhood did for me was it was, you know, it's a profoundly like strong biological experience. Like your whole brain gets reorganized to like be in love with this um, thing that, you know, <laughs> that um, doesn't really give back to you for a while. <laughs> and so it's like profound the way our brains are reshaped in that experience. And so, and, but we know a lot about mom brains from like lab rodents and things like that. And some really lovely work by a lot of people. And, but we at the time didn't really know how the brains of dads worked. And so I decided that what I wanted to do was to kind of dissect these different aspects of parental care like what is happening in the brains of moms and the brains of dads, both in the context of like uniparental care and in the context of like where there's coordinated care. So in species that are biparental. So like all mammalian species where dads participate are are that way because Mm -hmm. like mom being involved is 
part of being a mammal. It's obligatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other species, that's not the case. And so where there's like male uniparental care. And so I was looking for species that um, showed a lot of variation in parental care, but had uh, similar ecologies. Um, so like lived in similar places. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was doing that, I ran across poison frogs and or dendrobatids and which I had no idea what they were. And I had to Google what a dendrobated was. <laughs> dendrobated. <laughs> and then like they popped up and I looked at the images and I was like, mm, that's not bad. <laughs> because, you know, they had a huge, they'd been a model system for a long time in ecology and evolution. And so we know a lot about where they are and what they do in the field. And that's a really, really lovely foundation for the work we do now. But no one was doing really anything molecular with them at the time. There was nobody doing genomics with them. There's no one looking at brains. And so um, that's what I decided I wanted to do. But because no one was doing those things, I did not have a place to postdoc. Like, you know, you, you go to a postdoc to like learn something new and then maybe you like combine some of your experiences from grad school and your postdoc like into like what you want to do, like kind of making your niche later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had nowhere to go for a postdoc. And so, and I had my heart set on doing this thing. And so I applied for one job, this wow. one fellowship um, at Harvard and I pitched this project. So I was on maternity leave at this point. Evelyn was home from the hospital. I'm on maternity leave and I see this fellowship come up and I'm like, I'm going to apply for this. And so she's like in a bassinet here, oh like, rock, like rock, rocking the bassinet and then also like <laughs> typing this fellowship. And, um, and then I wrote it without having ever seen a poison frog in real life. Yeah. And I was just it was purely based on this idea that I had that I could like study parental care in this, uh, in this clade. Um, and I like sent it off because at this point I was going to probably leave science because um, I was going to go back to doing scientific illustration and then doing um, grant writing because I love to write, um, which I think also makes me successful in my job. Um, I love to write and make figures. Um, so I was going to do grant writing on the side. Um, and so I was going to, this is what I, this was my plan. Um, and then to my great surprise, like I got an interview from Harvard for this fellowship and like I went and interviewed, they do it like the European style where like all the interviewees are there at the same time. And you're like all watching each other's presentations. And when I left, I was like, all these people are amazing. And anyone who gets this is going to do like phenomenal. And I didn't feel bad about anything at all. Um, And so, and then they, they gave me that job (laughs) and then I was like, Oh God, now I have to figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I like started to going to herp shows, trying to figure out like where to get these things and how to raise them and make connections and things like that. Um, because in a year I would have to like build a colony. And I was like, ah, yeah. um, it's like there weren't, that, that no one is doing that at the time. And so, um, <laughs> um, it, you know, that's not necessarily advice I would give people now. <laughs> Just apply for this one job that you're like, it's like the hill you're going to die on. And then, you know, and then like, you're, or you're going to go do something else and leave science. Um, so that's not like advice I give to everybody, but that's just what happened. <laughs> and it was because I was going to be totally happy leaving academia and doing this mm-hmm. other thing that makes me happy. And so, but then I got this like kind of once and like a lifetime opportunity thing. And then, so I just, we decided to go. Um, and then, as you know, it worked out fairly well. And we spent like five years building up this new system um, for the work we wanted to do. Um, and then, then I took that with me. So other Bauer fellowships are not tenure track. So, you know, you're given a lot of money and to do something totally new and, you know, uh, unorthodox. And then hopefully with that bump, you're able to get a job somewhere. Um, yeah. And so that worked out. <laughs> it did work out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, do you ever wish that you had gone into scientific illustration? Like, do you have any doubts sometimes? Um, sometimes I like wonder what that would have been like. Um, I would probably be living near my family, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think moving around in academia and like, especially being married to another scientist is hard. Um, you can't do science everywhere. Yeah. Um, so I think the geographic restrictions that science puts on you can be really hard. Um, and so I think about that a lot. 
um, especially in the Bay Area where it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. And I live in faculty housing because I can't afford a house. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, I also think about like the demands of my job, which are like, like I think as a grad student or even as a postdoc, you can have like no idea of like the amount of non-science crap you have to do. And so, or like how your most difficult task is not the science part. That's easy because that's what you were trained for. It's Mm -hmm. the budgeting and managing people that Mm -hmm. we're not trained for. And those are the hardest parts. And sometimes those are so hard that I think grant writing as a contractor looks really good. Um, (laughs) You know, but then something exciting happens or like, you know, because somebody brings me a lovely piece of data or like, you know, someone's like, wow, I like discovered something new. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I still do this. Yeah. (laughs) So then I like brought back to reality. And so I kind of like sometimes oscillate between those two points, the points where I could have an easier job with it was less stress. And then like seeing people make these discoveries that are really amazing that like keep me here a little bit longer. Yeah. Now that I see also more of like what outside academia jobs are like, I'm also more grateful for my job. Cause mm-hmm. like my partner is in biotech and the startup world. And like, I hear a lot of grad students who are like, I want to go into industry cause I want a nine to five job. And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's not how that industry operates. <laughs> um, unless you're like going to work for like big pharma, like the startup world is even more like grueling than the number of hours you're working and expectations and you get inspired for like, if you don't do an experiment, right. You know, there's no like protection like graduate students have. Um, And so, or like even postdocs have, I think there's a lot of like protections that come from being a part of a big organization um, that you don't have in the startup world. And so, yeah, they also, I've come to appreciate some of the aspects that I have in academia where like no one's keeping track of my hours like yeah. no one is looking to see if I'm on Slack at nine in the morning, you know, and then like I can leave at 430 to go pick up my kids without any like institutional reprimand. You know, I might have this like person going like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> I'm looking at their watches when I'm walking out the door. But like it's I don't have anybody fussing at me, you know, from, a, from no one is my boss in that sense. And like is yeah. like keeping track of my hours worked, which is nice. Yeah. So sort of along those lines, I know we've talked quite a bit about the boundaries that you set in regards to like work and life balance and things like that. But what other sorts of things do you do to keep yourself like mentally well and sane and everything like that with all the demands that come with being a faculty member? Mm-hmm. So like non-science things. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, and that, that's really hard now when I'm like always at home. And yeah. so I was actually just talking to about this with my be well therapist which was we had like set very like we were trying to like realign this wish to have a hard like work life um uh, like balance and so um so I have a hard stop at six now Mm -hmm. um and I just don't and I don't work again until my kids are in bed and so if my spouse is doing something else then I can go back to work um and then I also read books so I used to have a lot of problems sleeping because if I, I would write grants really late because this is when my kids were in bed or I would be doing emails or analyzing data or something and I would go to bed and I would lay there for hours thinking about this grant or my experiment mm-hmm. or, I, or I'm like doing, giving a lecture in the morning and then I like fall asleep and I'm giving the lecture in my sleep. And that's, what, that's one of my like personal red flags. So if I am dreaming about work, I am doing it too much and mm-hmm. I need like a, I need to reevaluate what I'm doing at night. Um, and so, so I definitely, so I read books now, like for 30 minutes to an hour before I go to bed mm-hmm. and that, and since I started doing that, I don't dream about grants or lecturing or science anymore. And I fall asleep immediately. So that has really helped. Yeah. At first I thought I was going to have to give up caffeine and that was really worrying to me. <laughs> oh so the other thing that I do besides reading after bed is, well, before COVID I took like community class art classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we got to, so it, it allows me to do a couple of things. It allows me to meet people that are not part of my university, which I really value, like broadening my, my network and like the people I know who have, who come from different experiences. Um, and so when I got to Stanford, for example, I took some art classes, like night art classes at the local high school and met like a lot of people from 
all over and it was really amazing. And I think that when I'm doing those kinds of art classes, like, or working out or anything that is not science, I think that that's what kind of gives me a reset or a chance to think about a problem that I'm having differently and is really important in how I make decisions Mm -hmm. and how, like giving my time, my mind space to like, think about something else for a while and put this other thing, like kind of on the back burner for a little bit. And then when it comes back to the forefront, then I'm like ready to deal with it and have Mm -hmm. had like time away from it. And I think that's also something really important in my personal scientific process and how I approach Mm -hmm. problems. You just mentioned very briefly that you're seeing a therapist. And I think that's something important to like talk about because we've had grad students on the show who've talked about going to therapy. But I think also hearing that like faculty members also do this is like really important for people to know about that like faculty members also need to like take care of their mental well-being. Yeah, I I don't think it's common, um, but it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I we talk a lot about mental health in our lab because it's a big priority for us. And we talk about how going to therapy is a strength and not a weakness, like taking care of yourself. That includes, you know, not only your physical self, but your mental self. Um, because I think a lot of actually the, the, the hard parts about academia are not the science, it's uh, the people and the people need to be taking care of themselves mentally for, for like a group to work really well together. Um, and I think a lot of people say that, but then they don't actually do that for themselves at the Mm -hmm. faculty level, which Mm -hmm. is really important because we hold a lot of power and whenever we're not well ourselves, we can make a lot of people miserable in our labs, right? Like what we say or how we're feeling can be interpreted a lot of different ways and Mm -hmm. can really impact people. And so I think being cognizant of that and like how you're feeling or how you're interpreting other situations or, you know, how you speak to other people is, is super important for faculty members and for everyone. But um, for fa- you know, I'm saying this for faculty members because I don't think many people do that or at least they don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just like graduate students at Stanford have caps, so like free therapy, um, faculty members also have free therapy. Um, mm-hmm. And then they will also um, put you in contact with um, a more regular therapist. And so, and I don't think this is something you have to do when you like, I did sign up for therapy when I was like about to have a breakdown because I couldn't handle my stress levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I don't think it's something, you know, you don't have to wait till you have a meltdown to, uh, mm-hmm. to <laughs> it's more of like preventative maintenance. Like you could do it before you have a breakdown and then save yourself from that. And I wish I had done that sooner. The one thing I was just thinking of as you were saying this is like, as graduate students in any individual lab, like we all have each other to like talk to and like deal with the struggles that we're dealing with at the time. But like, is it sort of lonely as a faculty member? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, like, this is a very common thing on, on like new PI Slack, for example, um, that it's incredibly lonely yeah. um, because if you have problems, you don't have a lot of people to talk to about mm-hmm. them. Like, cause you cannot, you absolutely cannot talk about anyone in your lab to another lab member. Um, and people who do that shouldn't, um, it's never a good decision. Um, and so, but then who do you go talk to? I mean, you sometimes have like other faculty members. So the junior faculty in our department, like we, you know, I sometimes bounce ideas off of them and, and, and things like that, but then also, I have like a senior faculty mentoring committee that I can sometimes bounce things like lab management off. Mm -hmm. Um, But often they're like very senior and have very different styles. Like Mm -hmm. when I'm talking about lab management, I'm like, how often do you meet with your people? And they're like, I meet with my people once a quarter. So I'm like, okay, so you meet with your your people like four times a year. They're like, yes. I'm like, "Mm -hmm." I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. I don't know if thank I could survive in that. <laughs> and so like, I think, I think it's hard to have somebody to talk to, which is also why like therapy or being a part of a group of faculty who are going through um, different things um, can be really helpful. Um, I think also having faculty at similar institutions that have similar in, um, expectations are, is also 
really helpful because I think especially, I don't know, I think being a faculty member is isolating anyways. Um, and then I think some universities put a, there's like a lot of pressure on junior faculty. And I don't know if that's coming from, I'm, I don't know right now if that's coming from an institutional um, thing or if it's like a self-imposed um, expectation about how you're delivering. It's probably a mix of both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in pursuing a career in science? Mm-hmm. Um, I The advice I would give them is to try out science in whatever way you can, whether or not that's like being able to get research experiences um, in your local university or participating online in some type of like citizen science uh, based um, platform, like kind of getting involved in whatever either online or in-person experience that you have access to is, is super important to like try it out to see if you even like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to know that I think resiliency is a really important part of science. And so know that science fails a lot and that that's okay. Mm-hmm. And so to more like practice having a growth mindset. So where you, like when you run into a problem or get negative feedback, it's not like, oh, I don't belong here or, oh, I can't be a scientist. Or I'm like, uh, you know, instead you should be like, that is a, you know, that's something that I can work on mm-hmm. or, you know, this is something that I can do better and then decide to do like work on that a little bit more rather than like deciding that, that you don't, you know, that, that you don't have what it takes to be a scientist. Mm-hmm. Because scientists are not geniuses. They are not like people who have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. They're like people, most of them are like people who either got really lucky or didn't give up. Mm-hmm. And so, and even the ones that got really lucky are like the minority, I feel like. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, don't give up would be my other one. So Lauren, if people want to follow along with what's going on in the lab, how could they do that? Uh, They have two options. One, they could follow me or the lab on Twitter. So we have a lab account that is like student run. And then I have also have a Twitter account. So they could do both or either of those things. You could also follow our science and our updates on our lab webpage, which I do keep updated fairly frequently and also has my contact info on it. Great. And I'll put links to all those things in the show notes. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this interview with Lauren. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review in your podcast listening app of choice, and be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always email us at rootstostempodcast at gmail.com or find us at our website, which is rootstostempodcast.com. We'll be back soon with another episode.